You are listening to the Next Best Picture podcast, and this is my interview with the writer, director, and producer of The Nightingale, Jennifer Kent. I wish I were on yonder hill. We don't want no trouble. That's just the way, isn't it? You don't want trouble, but sometimes trouble wants you. There I'd sit and cry my fill. Get me to the soldiers that came by this morning. It's too dangerous. Up north, they kill us. You sure you want to follow him? All right, everyone. I am sitting here now with the writer, director, and producer of the film The Nightingale. It premiered uh, last year at the Venice uh, Film Festival, showed again at the Sundance Film Festival where I had the pleasure of seeing the movie and it garnered such a reputation for itself. It's finally releasing now where people can finally get a chance to see it for themselves. You might have heard a lot of things about it, but now we're going to hear from the woman herself. Jennifer, (laughs) how are you today? I'm well, thanks, Matt. How are you doing? I'm great. I'm really, really good. I'm really, really excited to get a chance to actually chat with you because When I saw the film back at Sundance, I I immediately ran out of my seat once it was over. I rushed down to the stage to shake your hand and congratulate you on the film because I loved it so, so much. And I I just Uh want to say it again to you. Congratulations. I I think it's a wonderful piece of art. Thank you. Thank you. It was was certainly an ordeal getting this one to the screen, but something we're really very proud of. Yeah. Um, tell me a little bit more about that, because another film that we all love so much was The Babadook, and that came out back in mm-hmm. 2014. And I'm sure a lot of people are wondering, uh, what was going on over the last five years between uh, those two films, Babadook and The Nightingale, for you? Well, I think sometimes people forget that writer-directors have to write their material. (laughs) uh, (laughs) You know, so we can't turn out a script in three months and then go and make it in six. So, you know, you're not going to get a film every year from a writer-director, that's for sure. Um, But I I was also writing another film in that time. So I was writing to Neck and Neck. And so what it means is that I now have a finished script that we're, you know, looking to finance at the moment. Um, so yeah, it wasn't it wasn't that it was necessarily a major struggle. I mean, I I did have a lot of offers of other things that you know I really entertained, but ultimately, um, the story that I wanted to tell next was this one. So that's how that's how it came about. Yeah. So in regards to the story, because it is a very particular type of story set in Tasmania in 1825. Mm. Um, Where did the story, the idea of it come from for you? And why was it so important for you to tell the story of the Nightingale? Well, it started with an idea that wasn't based in history. So I was feeling the need to talk about uh, how I felt about the world and, you know, the world we live in now. And in terms of the fallout from violence and, you know, the violent response I was seeing in the media and everywhere around me, you know, the violence seems to be uh, a first response to a lot of um, the world's problems, which um, is obviously not having uh, much success in resolving things. So it was, it was something that I was grappling with and I felt that I wanted to talk about and it wasn't, oh, I know, I want to tell a period film and I want to set it here. It was just through musing on this idea 
of violence. I came to think about my own country's history and, you know, what that meant to me. And, and over a period, it became clear that I wanted to set the story in Tasmania in this period because it was one of our darkest chapters um, and it was, you know, the beginning of uh, white Australia and it was a very brutal beginning. And I think the minds that created colonial uh, colonialism is the same mind that's uh, feeding the violence that exists in the world today. So it made, whilst it's a period film, it made uh, sense for our, our contemporary lives. One of the things that uh, struck me while watching the film and it, ties back a lot to uh, what you're just saying there in regards to history. The comparison I immediately thought of while watching this was movies like Schindler's List, 12 Years a Slave, where they're showing ultimately uh, the horrors of past history and the lessons that we can learn from them. And there is a mixture of both the brutality and the beautiful in, I think, all three Mm. of those movies. Um, do you feel yeah. that we are destined to repeat history or do you feel that we can learn from it? You know, the pull to repeat it is so strong. And I think that, you know, films dealing with this subject, that's why they've been so strong in response because, you know, desperate times require strong measures and sometimes mm-hmm. we need to be woken up out of a very safe and comfortable dream and uh, look at what's going on around us. And so I think we have the potential for evolution, and I would like to think that um, that we can. But I think that the potential for evolution lies in each and every one of us. So, uh, you know, it comes down to our choices as a human on a day-to-day basis. Do I choose to add to the violence in the world, or, or do I choose to focus on love and kindness and compassion and understanding? And, uh, you know, I think ultimately the film is an exploration of the latter um, in the form of the relationship that develops between Claire and, and Billy. You know, and that, 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 for my money, is the heart of the film and it's what, it's what gives us hope through the darkness. I, I 100% agree with you on that. Uh, and it's definitely a organic relationship that takes its time to build throughout the movie and I, I think that it definitely to your point is the heartbeat for sure in sticking with the cast mm-hmm. there um what was it like uh you know coming to your casting decisions for this i mean for example i i've never seen sam claflin in a role like this before and i probably never will uh, again <laughs> and i just yeah. uh, for the three main principles just wondering what your uh, uh process was how did you find them uh and what was it like working with all of them well, I put a lot of time into first casting actors and then working with them. It's, it's of huge importance to me that they feel loved and respected and cared for and protected. And certainly when the material is as tough as this, you need the right kind of uh, preparation. So in, in terms of casting, I mean, it's a very instinctual, uh, intuitive uh, decision-making process. But we had a very thorough um, sort of search for for all of these roles. I I really, my preference was to not choose stars or to at least choose people who could disappear into the world of the film um, so that we weren't distracted by someone's fame. 
uh, in the midst of, of this story. And I think Sam, initially, the idea came to me and I heard that he'd read the script and he really wanted to do it. But, you know, I saw him as this matinee idol, this handsome, very sweet, uh, charming, sort of leading man. And I thought, no. (laughs) But then, to his credit, he auditioned for the role and I worked with him and I saw something exceptional in him that... He, he well, first he had the courage to play this kind of damaged character, yeah. But he has this warmth that that Hawkins needed, which was, you know, um, so important because I think we we think of characters like this as ugly or hideous or you know with big signs over their heads saying I am the rapist, I'm the I'm the bad guy, but you know Sam. Um, has this warmth and and uh, it it was a perfect it was a perfect choice for me um, and I think he's you know he's done an exceptional job um, same with Ashling I mean I, you know I have I have what's called the goosebump test where I see a I see a test and I I just have full body goosebumps thinking this is a person and I had that with Ashling and. And also with Bakerley, I mean, mm-hmm. you know, as Billy, it's his first performance, and it was a very different casting process. So, you know, I had to go to remote communities and look for for that person. But when I found Bakerley, I just, you know, he'd never acted, but after a very short time on set, um, he he shined. He was just a born actor. So I look at the cast now and I, I just am so grateful for these perfect actors who, you know, have, have given everything of themselves to these roles. Yeah, I, I mean, when you say give everything, I, I remember uh, watching Aisling in the uh, theater and just like my hand over my head, like, oh, my God, like, I can't even imagine what every day on set must have been like for her and what she had to tap into as an actress. You talked before about making your actors mm. uh, feel safe. And I imagine uh, both on Babadook with Essie Davis and with this uh, for Aisling, it was probably, uh, you know, that similar environment where y- you had to, uh, you know, go to those lengths to make them feel comfortable. Can you talk a little bit more uh, just about what, that was like every day? Well, I mean, Ashling is a very funny person and, and I like to have a laugh as well. So we really connected on that level and made sure we nice. made each other laugh when it got, when things got a bit tough. Uh, there were lots of hugs and, you know, we, we, we have a lot of love for each other. We're, we're friends now and we, you know, we, we keep in regular contact, but I had a lot of rehearsals with her and that wasn't at all about, rehearsing the lines of the script it was really about finding out who Claire is together but also just hanging out together and developing a trust you know and then I brought on Sam into the rehearsals and it was about doing improvisations where they could in an abstract way explore that very tough relationship but again with love and care and Sam is such a supportive person so you know, he would help Ashlyn get into that space without harming her. You know, can you imagine having an actor who wasn't considerate yeah. of the actress in that role it would be terrible. So yeah. I think it came down to casting as well. I knew that I was dealing with Aboriginal culture, with which I was not uh, completely familiar with. I was dealing with 
a number of foreign languages. I was dealing with children on set, babies, animals. We're in nature. I couldn't afford to have an actor who or an actress who was um, a diva or who was uh, not generous. So within the casting process, while I was sizing up the, the potential to play a role, I was also looking at, well, who is this person? And how generous are they? And what are they a team player? So they, everyone had to tick those boxes as well. And I think the feedback from the crew, which, which came back, was, wow, we've never had a group of actors who are so humble and so such team players. And you know, I, think, I feel really proud of that because um, they were, they are amazing people. Last two questions. Yeah. One of them is for me. One of them is for the audience. So the one for me, uh, can yeah. you tell me your decision to shoot the movie into four by three aspect ratio and why that decision was made? It was a really strong feeling I have from the outset. And I had to convince my DP Ruddick to come along with me on that ride. But it, after we did our first set of tests, he was sold. And the reason being is that I wanted to make a film about humans in nature not about nature with humans in it. So mm. people needed to be the focus. And the thing about Academy Ratio is it has a lot of height and a lot of depth. And the Tasmanian forests are full of very tall, huge trees with a lot of you know, depth to, uh, to the backgrounds. So, and also you put a human in there and it's the person, it's that human that stays as, as our focus. Um, whereas, say, if you're in CinemaScope, you have to go wide and the person becomes like an ant in relation to these huge trees. So it, it's made total sense to me. And, you know, both Ruddick and I are so uh, happy with the, with the response, um, with, you know, with how it looks, with the finished uh, result. I think it's staggeringly beautiful, uh, no matter which way, because it, it really, I think, yeah. I think your instincts are definitely on the mark there. It makes perfect sense to me. Yeah, it feels quite painterly too. So, you know, that was yeah. another thing that helped us for the period. Last question. Yeah. There's been a lot of talk about this movie, a lot of buzz. Um, I've done my part in trying to get people to see this movie. Yeah. Uh, obviously, it may not be for everyone. Yeah. And I can understand that. I want people to see it with an open mind, though. What is the ultimate thing that you want people to take away from The Nightingale? I think that, firstly, don't believe uh, the the hype around the violence. I think that, you know, sure, I wouldn't probably advise people who've had very tough situations that they're still dealing with um, to, to come see it right now. But I think that the film ultimately focuses on love and the importance of empathy and compassion and kindness and that um, the, the other elements of the film are a backdrop for that to come to life. And, you know, I could never make a film that was nihilistic or violent for the sake of it. And I think that there is a very strong love and a heart running through this film. And I, and I hope uh, people can discover that for themselves. I hope so too. I generally do because I got the sense of that while watching it. I really, really hope others do as well. The film is uh, premiering uh, here in the States on August 2nd, being distributed by IFC Films. Jennifer, 
thank you so, so much for taking a few minutes to talk to us about this really remarkable film. And we hope to see you again very, very soon because, man, you're, 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 you're one-two punch of the Babadook and now the Nightingale. It, it's just, oh, we want more. We just want more. <laughs> thank you, Matt. And can I just say on the, on the opening, if people are curious to see it, go and see it on opening weekend because independent cinema needs that support. You know, unfortunately, we're... We live in a world where uh, weekend uh, numbers matter. So if you intend to see it, go and see it August 2nd or 3rd. Um, You'll be doing the film a big favor. Yes, yes. Please, everyone. Please, please. You heard it from Jennifer Kent herself. Go. (laughs) Thank you so much, Jennifer, and best of luck. Or else the Babadook will get you. There you go. (laughs) Yeah. Take care. Okay. Thanks so much, Matt. Thank you. All the best. Bye. Hey everyone, thank you so much for listening to my interview with the writer, director, and producer of The Nightingale, Jennifer Kent. You have been listening to The Next Best Picture Podcast. You can subscribe to us on iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, Player FM, Acast, CastBox, and also on Spotify. Be sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and let us know what you think of the show. And if you're feeling supportive, head on over to Patreon, where for $1 minimum a month, you can get some exclusive podcast content from us. Thank you so much for listening, as always, and we shall see you all next time.